0: You just keep bad things away from your project. That's what a director does. All the great things that happen in a project, it's not really because of you. It's if the bad things creep in, that's your fault. (laughs) If something doesn't feel right, don't let it slip through. Even if other people are saying, it's fine, it's fine. Like, you're the one who has to say, no, it's not.
1: listening to She Does, a series featuring women working in media, all forms of media.
2: We wanted to know how these women got to where they are today. So we asked, found out, and thought you might like to know too. I'm Sarah Ginsberg. And I'm Elaine Sheldon. And today we would
1: like to introduce you to Kat Cizek. She's an innovative documentary storyteller who works across many media platforms. She's currently the director of the National Film Board of Canada's High Rise multi-year and multimedia project that examines life inside residential skyscrapers in suburbs all around the world.
2: Since it launched in 2009, High Rise has generated interactive documentaries, mobile productions, live presentations, installations, and films. Just yesterday, on June 2nd, Kat and the NFB released the latest and final high-rise project. It's called Universe Within and explores people's digital lives online. Also, later in the show, you'll meet Audrey Ryan, our featured music maker, this week. We interviewed Kat back when she was still in production of Universe Within and got a sneak peek
1: into her process. A process that has collaboration right at the center of it. Collaboration with NFB producers, with residents of high-rises, and with technologists, animators, and filmmakers from many countries. Kat's role as a director in highly technical projects is an inspiration for any woman working in technology. She manages diverse and global teams that come together on one project. And there are a lot of moving parts.
0: I think the easiest way to describe my role, which I don't think it's changed at all from documentary or film directing in the sense that you just keep bad things away from your project. That's what a director does. Working with people that are a lot brighter, a lot more talented than I am, but just keeping the bad stuff away. It's just like bad fonts or a bad piece of sound or a photo that's not up to snuff. I stay really close to edits. You know, I often do like, I'll do the, edit, the final edits on staff. Letting people do what they're best at, but ultimately just really being quality control. Walter Murch talks about how in the early years of cinema, most of the editors were women. Editing was kind of quote-unquote relegated to women as a craft, like knitting or sewing. And, and that I find really hugely inspiring. Where a lot of the true creation happens, I believe, is sort of in the margins. And, and often that's that's where, that's where women have been. We'll go deeper into her process
1: later in the show, but first, a history lesson, or rather, a little slice of history that shaped her worldview.
0: August the 21st, 1968. Soviet tanks roll into the center of Czechoslovakia's capital city, ending what had become known throughout the Western world as the Prague Spring.
1: Katz's family escaped what was then called Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic, during the Russian invasion. Her father was a professor of quantum physics. The small family settled in Waterloo, Ontario, a university town. Kat has an older brother, but she was the first and only born in Canada.
0: We moved to a a complex of little townhouses where there were tons of immigrants from all over the world. We traveled quite a bit when I was young and Czech was my first language. I learned uh, French and English next. We didn't have other family in Canada, so we were sort of making everything From scratch. But Kat
1: and her family had access to something that most people in the world didn't even know existed at the time a terminal. Yes, a terminal. That's what we call early computers. And University of Waterloo, where her father worked, had a relationship with IBM in the 1960s. And thanks to her
0: father, Kat really was one of the first digital natives. My dad did a lot of his work on the mainframe at the university, and he says he was one of the first people in the world to bring home a terminal to his home and a modem. And so my dad taught me how to hook up onto what was then this sort of proto-internet. You know, I was so young at the time that it, it was such a natural part of my life that when the internet came around for the rest of the world, I was like, yeah, yeah, I know how to do that, of course. That's, that's part of the language that we have in our own home. Kat used the terminal
1: to communicate with her father while he was traveling. He taught her how to code and how to print, how to send some of the first emails. She wrote her high school papers on the terminal. She even used it to protest and rally with her peers at school. I don't know about you guys, but I'm imagining this massive machine and this tiny little girl, though I'm not sure that's accurate.
0: I actually ran with a bunch of people uh, from my school. We, we ran a little revolution in our school. We were kind of unhappy with the administration. So we had a sit-in and we sort of did this big political act. And so a lot of our <laughs> flyers and all that kind of stuff I sort of did uh, using my dad's terminal. So I was, I was politically active using technology pretty young. I do think, you know in retrospect, it really rubbed onto my brother and, and me in, in profound ways in, in the ways that we try and do our political work in the material world.
2: But the revolution didn't result in the change that Kat wanted to see. She continued to have a hard time in high school. So much so, she dropped out for a little while.
0: I was just really uh, intellectually unchallenged (laughs) by high school and by, by my classmates. I wasn't interested in what they were interested in. And I was kind of headed down the wrong road. I was interested in poverty. I was interested in understanding why the world was so unequal. (laughs) And uh, they weren't. They were interested in parties and sororities and whatever, like football. I just, it was just a huge cultural clash for me. My dad, my mom, my grandmother, who lived with us as well eventually, and my brother, they were all very politically engaged uh, people. So we talked about that kind of stuff all the time. My dad had taken the family from the Czech Republic. He didn't want to do that, he wanted to be back home. There was always this thing looming over our family about uh, what had happened in Czechoslovakia. You know, there was this constant, what would you call it, like a a malaise and and a political, we were caught up in a political situation.
2: After dropping in and out of high school, Kat was encouraged by her mom to take classes at the university. Her mom began to examine the available courses, searching for something that she felt her daughter could relate to.
0: And she found anthropology in the course book that was available in the evenings. And she said, I'll, I'll set this up for you. And she, she went down to the high school, got it arranged with a counselor, and, and I went one of my very first courses. I think the first course was philosophy, and then the second course was anthropology.
2: And she said, you might like this. I think this would suit how you see the world. And she was right. She was right, because Kat would go to McGill University in Montreal to study anthropology.
0: I wanted to get out of Waterloo as soon as I could. While Suzanne Leonard Cohen at the time, I, his his music inspired me to to go explore Montreal and find Suzanne, so I did.
2: know that she will find you, for she's touched you.
1: When Cap first got to McGill, the Oka Crisis happened. The Oka Crisis was a defining moment in First Nations history, a moment when a piece of land was torn between two groups, the Mohawk people and the town of Oka, Quebec, Canada. The city wanted to extend the ninth hole of a golf course onto the Mohawk's ancient burial grounds, land that was marked by standing tombstones of the Mohawk's ancestors.
0: The Mohawk Nation said no, and they stood up and they started a barricade, started um, a blockade, and then the Quebecois police were sent in, and it was a dirt road where the, the altercation happened.
2: Tear gas and dirt filled the air. Shots were fired. And when the dust settled, there was one dead. A police officer was found lying on the ground.
0: It was never made clear throughout the entire situation where that bullet came from. It was later revealed, much later, that it was a ricochet, a
2: police bullet. But nonetheless, the army, the Canadian army, was sent in. The dispute began on July 11, 1990, and lasted until September 26, 1990.
0: There were uh, Mohawk warriors and warriors that came from across North America to stand up against the Canadian army and, and demand that uh, the land claim be um, be recognized. <music>
1: herself behind the barricades in the heart of the crisis, she experienced the local perspective as a student photojournalist, an experience that would open a whole new way of thinking to her.
0: What I witnessed with my own eyes was so incredibly different than what was I what I was seeing on the television. That really affected me and, and made me realize how important voices from from inside communities need to be amplified, and how the media needs to change. You know, I think it was built up on on the experiences I had had, obviously as as a, as a younger kid. But that was a defining moment in Canada. But it was also a defining moment for me to witness that kind of violence, and that kind of blatant disrespect for, for human rights in my in, in, in my own in my own land. Whoa, 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 whoa,
3: the songs You wanna give up, you wanna give up The life the songs won't leave
1: After the dispute, a group of First Nation and non-First Nations, including Kat, got together. They wrote a book, a sort of ethno-history of the land claims. They printed the 36-page booklet on newsprint and published 6,000 copies and distributed it in neighboring communities. Then they went back to the respective homes for summer break and summer jobs. They returned to McGill in
0: the fall to a big surprise. And we got back to our PO box, we opened it, all these letters spilled out, over 50 to 100 letters. Bridges and Barricades, this little publication that we had made in Quebec, had somehow gotten into the prison system and had been read by First Nations inmates everywhere, and had, they had written us long handwritten letters talking about how the situation in Oka was so consistent with their experiences in their own communities. It was such a powerful moment to realize, you know, you make something, it's like a, this little publication, and you put it out into the world, and you have no idea where it's going to end up. And I think that stands for all the media that we make. We just don't, don't know um, how far it can reach, and that's, that really excited me and gave me a lot of fuel to continue.
1: Kat left McGill with her anthropology degree. She was happy to be out of the bubble of academia, and she calls herself
2: media agnostic, and it's evident in her career path. She has worked in newspapers, she even founded a newspaper, photojournalism, radio, and independent film, including the 2002 film Seeing is Believing, which she co-directed with Peter Wintonic. Seeing is Believing was about handicams, human rights, and the news.
0: Over the last decade, handicams have become the eyes of the world when no one else is watching.
2: The film shows to what extent the handicam has acquired a political and social function, a topic of recent relevance given the events in Baltimore, Ferguson, and New York City. Peter and Kat followed a Filipino human rights activist named Joey Lozano, who documents acts of violence in his country. When I go
0: with indigenous peoples trying to recover their lands, the mere presence of a video camera saved them from, from outright massacre from are men.
1: Uh-huh. Kat moved to Toronto, where she met some folks who worked at the National Film Board of Canada, also known as the NFB. The NFB is Canada's 12 time Academy Award winning public film and digital media producer and distributor. The NFB has produced over 13,000 productions, from docs to animation to web based media, which have won over 5,000 awards. Out of the blue, she got an email from NFB producer Peter Starr. He had just seen her film Seeing is Believing.
0: He contacted me, I met him and he contacted me and said, check out this research dossier. And I looked at it and I opened it up and it was um, about an inner city hospital. I thought, oh God, Like that's the last thing the world needs is another documentary about you know inner city hospitals. But then I saw that in fact, that they were interested in, in rejuvenating the Challenge for Change program. Challenge for Change was a program at the NFB
1: from 1967 to 1980. It was a participatory project that examined how film could be used to document with people instead of documenting about people. Over 140 films were made all across Canada, including films by Colin Lowe about life on Fogo Island in Newfoundland. In the films, Fogo Islanders talk about the community's lack of organization and communication, the fishing industry's decline, and solutions for poverty.
3: So apparently a lot of the economy of Fogo Island is government support. Now, how is this affecting the lives of the people, with reference to our youth, say? State and weather initiative.
1: And I think this is uh, increasing their desire to leave. Now, I'm not criticising the programme for uh, social welfare. There are some merits in it, and certainly there are uh, uh, times when uh, it's absolutely necessary. But uh, I think, like a lot of other things, it can go a little too far. Films were shown at 35 screenings, and they reached over 3,000 Fogo Islanders.
0: It was a program that had always inspired CAT. And so I thought, well, this, this is worth talking about. So I went in, I went on a five-week contract um, to do some research at the hospital. And that ultimately turned into like a you know, huge five-year-long project to see how documentary methodologies might improve the health outcomes of patients, but also create stories that might resonate further than even just within the hospital and the community to, to a universal global audience.
2: Out of this came Kat's first official role with the NFB as filmmaker-in-residence.
0: Crystal meth. Yeah. Got anything on oh, your man. Sharp?
2: A documentary project about life inside Toronto's St. Michael Hospital from the perspective of frontline doctors, nurses, and a mobile crisis unit. The collaboration between the film board, hospital, and Kat lasted five years. Her final work garnered a Webby Award for Best Documentary Series. I think he needs to... Uh Get checked out at the hospital at
3: first, and come down
0: office. Largely because of the web doc, I think um, a lot of attention came to the possibilities of those kind of co-creative methodologies. And the NFB came back to me and said, what next? How can we take some of these methodologies and some of these new forms that you've been using in your practice at St. Mike's and uh, take it to a higher level?
2: Kat began chatting with Jerry Flahive, who was a senior producer at the NFB until recently. He retired in May 2014. Since 1981, he produced more than 75 documentary films and interactive projects including the filmmaker-in-residence program at the hospital.
0: We went for a kind of a day-long brainstorm. He sat me down. He said, well, what are you interested in? And uh, I said, I'm actually really interested in Toronto. I'm interested in the city that seems so diverse. It's, you know, more than 50% of the population in Toronto is not born here, not from here. Um, And yet when you start, you know, for example, going into the hospital, you go into the boardrooms and it's all white, like what's going on here? How, how are there invisible forms of segregation happening here? And I got really interested in how the city is is dividing itself up, and that led me to some really world class thinkers and doers around city making and city building here in Toronto. And ultimately, out of that research uh, came the idea of high rise.
1: Since launching in two thousand nine, the NFB's High Rise series, directed by Kat has been examining the lives of those living in residential high-rises in Toronto, Canada, but in other countries, too, in China, the Netherlands, Cuba, Brazil, South Africa, the Czech Republic, and Turkey, to name a few. It was a topic that fascinated Kat to see all these cultures and languages crammed into one building, but really keeping to themselves, not mingling. The
2: High-Rise Project was meant to bring those people together. And all installments of Hi-Rise have received recognition and awards, most recently from the Emmys, Peabody Awards, and World Press Photo Awards. The latest, Universe Within, is the final installment in the High rise
1: series, and it was launched on June 2, 2015. It's a big deal for this series to come to an end. The Hi-Rise series has been monumental in the world of interactive documentaries. Just try and research Interactive Doc without finding Cat's name. See? I told you. The NFB has had a huge influence on the field, and Kat's efforts are at the center of it.
2: But beyond the awards, beyond the industry, are the people.
1: The people are at, or rather in, the heart of the high-rise, literally.
2: And Kat makes sure that her projects aren't just flashy, interactive spaces online. Instead, she wants them to ripple through the real world. They require participation. They get people together. They teach people new things, like young girls how to code. Some of the projects are educational tools. Others are installations and exhibits, like in the Toronto Underground Subway. Some are more meeting-based and invite politicians, urban planners, and the general public to talk at City Hall. The
1: first, and maybe the most well-known of the series, was Out My Window, and it was released in October of 2010. Out My Window is one of the world's first 360-degree documentaries, It features 90 minutes of content from 13 cities around the world. One high-rise, 13 windows. Each window, a view into a different city. Hotspots in the stitched photo environments trigger personal stories.
2: I miss all my old friends, a lot of them dead. A lot of them. There's just a lot of memories in that building. A lot of (laughs) tragedies. Me
0: being
1: Out my window's 360-degree environments and innovative storytelling blew people's minds, including mine. CAT has led us into buildings we might otherwise not even access, and allowed us to learn from individuals. In late 2011, the NFB and CAT released One Millionth Tower, which reimagines the high-rise neighborhood. It paired residents with architects and brought their drawings to life in a 3D virtual space. If you drive by, you may just see a high-rise building that looks ugly, but for us, this is our home. Then there's short history of a high-rise, a collaboration between the NFB and the New York Times. You have narration, including the first chapter by the well-known musician Feist short vignettes, simple interactive games, all in a chapterized setting.
3: Not so very long ago, though the city of New York was still young, from the land beside Central Park, a new sort
0: of building sprung. A montage of modern conveniences, the residential high-rise building grew. Running hot water, elevators, doormen, all of it was new. But it's been a long time that we've been placing ourselves in dwellings close to the sky and asking ourselves the perennial question, who gets the top floor and why?
1: Kat largely used forgotten photographs from the New York Times archives, lovingly called the morgue. The morgue includes newspaper clippings dating back to the 1870s, and it's estimated to have six to eight million physical photographs. But get this, only one to two percent are digitized. Kat poured over file cabinets filled with thousands of images in the morgue, in an attempt to tell the history of the high rise.
0: Looking back now, it's hard to believe there ever was a time when the standard high-rise was so universally beloved. The latest
1: and final installment, Universe Within, is a beast in and of itself. The experience mimics personal and intimate documentary conversations between the viewer and three host avatars. The fictional avatars are scripted and filmed in haunting 3D point cloud data. Each host asks viewers provocative questions about the role of ethics and empathy in our digital, vertical worlds. Can you see me? Of course you can. I'm standing right in front of you, flesh and blood. Well, not flesh and blood, of course. I'm a fictional creation of the documentary makers to be a sort of spirit guide to help you navigate through the true stories on this site. This project is called The
0: Universe Within.
1: It's about how people in high-rises use the internet to connect to other
2: people online. The high-rise projects are diverse in their concept and execution, but Kat didn't approach these projects with a particular format in mind. She looks at each story and each person who holds that story as a unique treasure, one that needs to be presented and given to the audience as a carefully prepared gift. Sometimes it's in the form of a very tangible product, like a book. Other times it's a 3D environment online.
0: In more conventional methodologies, you think of your product first. You think of, I'm going to make, like a 52-minute documentary film. Or I'm going to make a digital documentary that lasts about 20 minutes. Or, um, you know, like there's this real sort of you define what the end goal is and then you work towards it. And what's very different about both Filmmaker in Residence and High Rise is that there's a lot of planning that happens, but it has to do with relationships.
2: As part of building those relationships, Kat visited residents in the High Rise once a week for nearly three years. She learned about their experiences, what their issues are, how they feel, what they would like to see improved, but not seeing them as just subjects, seeing them as collaborators.
0: I've been preoccupied with the role of the subject for most of my my working life. I'm very critical of conventional anthropological and documentary methods, the observer and the observed. And so I like to talk about the people formerly known as the subject a subject isn't a subject, a subject is an agent in their own world and how can we work together to create interesting media I can learn from first lived experience approaching it in, in a different way than just a, an interviewer and along the way what can we create and make and do that will contribute significantly or at least positively in this in this community. Mm-hmm. I always like to think about it like with photography, like so many really cool things can happen before you've ever even created that last final image. The relationship that you create in a camera entering your room, and it could be very positive or it can be very negative. It's up to you to decide how, how to go about it. This incredible revolution that we've been through or that we're going through, uh, both good and bad, provides a moment every day with new technology that arrives to really question our methods and our ethics. And too often we just get so enamored with the myth of technology um, that we forget about that stuff. And, and in fact, it's an incredible opportunity to, to change that relationship as well.
2: Find those firsthand stories and relationships with her research in academia and her conversations with technologists. And then boom, it happens. Well, sort of. And then at a certain point
0: within the project, an idea would crystallize for me saying, yes, this is the moment to do something, to to create a product out of the, the learning that we've had here. So it's really a very, very different process. So it's like the product comes out of the process as opposed to defining the product and then figuring out the process to get there. With each project,
1: she works with a diverse team of technologists, animators, and producers. She has worked with Helios Design Labs, Imaginarius, and the Mozilla Foundation in the past. And most recently, she worked with the interactive agency Secret Location on Universe Within. Each of these teams use new technologies, but also pull from the past for visual references. At the end of the day, it's all about speaking in a visual language.
0: It's becoming more and more common across many different disciplines is just sort of creating like mood boards. So you just really draw and pull from anything and everything. And and we've had so many great creative conversations with Secret Location, just pulling in visual references from the past and from contemporary art and from posters, you know, like, I remember we had the Interstellar poster around for a bit.
1: Beyond stunning visuals, Kat says there is one key ingredient in the secret sauce of making a non-linear web project.
0: I've always thought that the, the secret to success with online stuff is actually in the sound. That's what distinguishes it from the rest of the internet because I think the music is what, and the, the soundscape is what helps create the immersion and the fluidity of the experience. And so I've always been interested in figuring out simple but elegant ways in which you just keep the sound going. And taking from game structures and how, how they use sound to create A a rich and full experience, even if it's just on the, you know, a user is listening to it on computer speakers.
1: When we interviewed Kat back in the spring, she was working with the musical duo Daffod Hughes and Nick Storing to record the live soundtrack for Universe Within. They used a piano, cello, and lots of electronic instruments. It
0: sounded like a lot of fun. When it came time to do Universe Within, I had an idea for the musical structure of the piece that was quite unique and bizarre. So what we've been doing over the last, um, every Monday for the last month, uh, is just getting together for the day. and uh, But essentially, they have to write a piece of music that will work on three or four stories, depending on what the user chooses. I project the stories off my computer on a large screen, and then it mixes through on speakers with what the music they're creating, and we're, we're just working that way together one of the things that I really love about this new project is beyond the musical soundscaping of it is we've written some music for it as well there's some sung um, it's like a musical documentary feel like
3: we are there
0: some of my friends are looking at the garden and- that um, was inspired by this really great play that I saw last year mounted in, in Toronto called London Road. It's from England. And uh, what happened was the theatre director w- went out to a community east of London where there had been some uh, serial killer on the loose. And um, uh, the theatre director just went with an audio recorder and interviewed the people who lived there. And she took those recordings and built a play out of it. So it became this documentary verbatim musical theater. And there was never a script written. There was never any text on paper. All the actors learned their lines from listening to the real people in the community speaking from these audio recordings. It really blew me away about about the the relationship between documentary and performance. And so I ended up very sideways and ended up being influenced by that play uh, for one element in the universe within.
3: But I still learned something inside, something inside.
0: Have you ever
1: met any resistance to, you know, trying to really stick with your, stick with what you know
0: is right? Every day. Every day. And along the way, while I was sort of trying to conceive it and, and trying to get people to work on it, there was, there was some resistance. Like, why are you writing music based on documentary script from your documentaries in this digital documentary? It's just so weird. Especially with digital projects where you're just working with so many little pieces Sometimes, like, a lot of the people that are working on the same project don't even meet each other. How do you make sure that what's coming into that final soup pot is all, is all working, right? There's nobody else really that knows what's in that soup except for you. There's so many people tell you that they can't be done. <laughs> That's just kind of and often it can't be and there's so many projects that end up on the sideline that you you have to say goodbye to keep on going with with the ones that you can carry through
1: so this is the last iteration of the high-rise series and Kat feels incredibly grateful to have had the experience she didn't give us any hints on what's next, but we know she's quite busy being a new mom. She and her partner have recently adopted their first child, a little girl she
0: fondly calls Little Red Dot. Um, I'm doing it much later in life than I would have hoped, to be honest. I certainly feel my age, but on the other hand, she keeps me young. So <laughs> it's like discovering discovering a whole new person inside of me as well. You know, it's like it's, um, it's so challenging in every way. Like stretches every part of your being.
2: One thing Kat is trying to do is make sure her daughter is grounded in her heritage. Two ways of doing this, speaking Czech to her and carrying on a special nightly tradition.
0: Every night we watch uh, Czech animation as her bedtime stories. That's kind of a Czech tradition. Uh, there's been an animation show on for 50 years on Czech television with this little figurine that always comes on screen with a paper hat and says, Dobry večer. Dobri večer, which means good evening. So, of course, Ava, like all Czech kids across uh, the Czech Republic, has a little paper hat and she she says, so we've started there. (laughs) She's definitely going to be an Anglophone uh, first, which kind of breaks my heart a little.
1: We'd like to thank Kat Zizek for sitting down with us and chatting.
2: Visit our website, SheDoesPodcast.com, to find links to all the projects we discussed today. This episode was produced by us, Sarah Ginsberg, and Elaine Sheldon. And sound design is by Billy Wrasnick.
1: Our featured music maker this week is Audrey Ryan.
3: What did they do in
1: the old days when they were feeling
3: obscure?
4: Did they drink themselves?
1: She's a one-woman band with some insane multi-instrument skills. An electric guitar, accordion, ukulele, banjo, vibraphone,
4: drums, and a loop station are all part of her setup, among some other tricks. I have a kick on my right foot. My left foot has a tambourine. I have a floor tom and then like a bunch of other percussion like, a, you know, shakers and whatnot. She
1: currently lives in Boston, but we caught up with her over Skype. She's from one of my favorite states, a lovely state of Maine but she actually grew up on an island off the coast and she comes from a very musical family her dad played guitar and her mom sang and played piano and the organ at church
4: they both ended up in maine in their like early 20s and that sort of back to the earth movement my mother was in a commune literally and my dad you know he worked at a sandal shop with his like high school best friend
1: Audrey started learning the guitar when she was 10 years old, playing folk tunes to the likes of the Indigo Girls, Joni Mitchell, and Bob Dylan.
4: I feel like every female is influenced by Joni Mitchell. She's like the gold standard for female singer songwriters, and so I've listened to pretty much all of her records. In college, she discovered jazz, and her main gig was playing the fiddle in bluegrass bands. I just started playing locally, and then before I knew it, I kind of developed into a solo artist, but that took it probably took four years for me to kind of come into what I now do, which is the one-man band thing. and it's all about timing in life. And so I became a solo artist because I had power over my own time and and like if someone said, "Do you want to play in europe and and I had the time, I'd be like, "Yeah, sure. I like that freedom.
3: Wait, wake the night. Feeling
4: first verse like wake wake in the night feeling humbled it was I had like a panic attack right at time I'm not really a panic attack kind of person but I did like wake up in the middle of the night and couldn't get back to sleep when I was around 30 and I was just like what am I doing with my life oh an artist is such an ego play. It's like your ego is always in your hands. And it's like the people that usually do the best in in the arts are people that have a really strong sense of themselves. Like that song is really about the ego thing. Sometimes you just have to make music or do art because you need to, not because it's going to give you anything back. Oh, and she shares one thing with Kat. They're both new moms. Yeah, it's intense. I put out an EP in September digitally. Now I'm putting it out physically. I'm making like, you know, a run of CDs. I didn't even do it in September because I was nine months pregnant. You know, I couldn't really do it. And then I started playing shows again when the baby was like three months old. And I don't know if I ever will. Like, I have no idea what will happen. Maybe I will tour again. Maybe I won't. But it doesn't mean you can't play music. I mean, I play guitar to her yesterday. Music is in my life. I sing to her. You know, like we do a kinder music class in JP. I bring her to. It's hilarious. Where you like sing to the baby and do all this junk with these other parents. It's pretty. It's one of those things where someone videotaped you would be so humiliated to watch yourself acting like that. But you're like, well, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm doing.
1: Head over to SheDoesPodcast.com slash music to read our interview with Audrey and to find links to her music and tour dates.
2: We want to say a special thanks to those of you who responded to our support call last week. We have received generous donations from many of you, and we want you to know that we are extremely grateful for your support. If you'd like to help keep She Does in your
1: ears, head over to com slash support to make a monthly or one-time donation. We hope you think it's worth it.
2: It also brightens our day to hear from you. So let us know what you like or what you don't like on iTunes by leaving us a review and rating.
1: Join us in two weeks as we introduce you to Mary Coleman and give you a sneak peek into the Pixar Animation Studio.
2: Thank you for listening to She Does.
4: Good evening.